It sort of made me reflect back to a time in Australia, and that, of course, was the Black Saturday. A good friend of mine at that time had sort of asked if we could help out to do some evacuation. I can remember rolling down the window, trying to see where we had to go, and I can remember hearing the roar of the fire. We could hear the horses galloping, screaming up and down through the field, and the fire had burnt the top of their mane and their head, and, and cattle and things had done the same. My eyes couldn't believe what I was seeing. G'day guys, welcome to the first official TRT podcast. We've been planning, it's been in the planning in the system to run a podcast for quite some time. My colleague Connie has been pushing for a long time <laughs> for us to do a podcast. During the pandemic, of course, there was an explosion of everybody doing podcasts and my tendency sometimes is to not go with the grain of what everybody else is doing at the time. But of course, during the pandemic, and also now after with the growth of the podcast, I've been invited to a lot of other people's podcasts to be a guest. And I found that it was a great place to be able to get deep on what we're passionate about. I also came to the realization just recently at our TRT live event here in the Netherlands, where we hosted an hour before the, the event, um, a session for our VIPs and a lot of them coming from all corners of the globe. And we got to share each other's stories and journeys. And it just became a space where it gave the sense of inspiration and energy, vitality. Um, we had a great sense of togetherness in that moment. And it's a great conversation communication um, where you can get inspired by um, talking about other people's journeys and ideas. So it also runs uh, with my personal belief um, that my passion is to learn as much as I can about myself through learning about horses. And my purpose, of course, is to share it all with you. So what better way to do that than in a podcast, another medium that you can all be maybe commuting to work, driving along or cleaning the stables, whatever it might be. You can have me in your ear for a small moment of your day. <laughs> so we have a great range of uh, things to talk about in the episodes. We also have a great list, a uh, great lineup of guests to invite here on the TOT podcast. But I wanted to start and let the foundation of the podcast be made up of stories of my past, things that have shaped me and led me to the place where I am today in my life. And I thought it's just a great opportunity to look back at these moments with the knowledge and the position that I have now and maybe draw out some messages and some secrets that maybe I would have missed in that moment and that I am very aware of uh, now in my position in the life now. So looking back on these sort of journeys and what was presented to me and how that's affected me and gotten me to where I am. Um, and I want to share that with you and uh, give you guys a little bit of a background of where I've come from and how I got to here and how the TRT platform and the now TRT family that is worldwide 
has, uh, has grown. So we are coming into a, quite a hot period here in Europe in summer. We're about to head into some very hot weather. And it sort of made me reflect back to a time in Australia where we'd had a sort of period of hot weather, a few hot summers in a row and sort of drought stricken. And there were some decisions made in Australia from process of um, looking after wildlife. Some people had some ideas that back burning, long tradition of back burning, which is basically burning um, the rubble and stuff on the ground, you know, trees and debris and branches and things. And back burning is a way of not letting too much fuel build up on the ground. Um, and that had been stopped for some years. And we ran into a period where it was probably the worst on record period of uh, bushfires in Australia. And that, of course, was the Black Saturday bushfires. You Aussies will know um, about that. Um, it was in the period of 2009, beginning February 2009. Um, it was one of the all-time worst uh, bushfires on record in Australia. There was a 173 fatalities. Um, many people were left without homes. Um, many people's lives devastated. There was something like 450,000 hectares burnt at the end uh, of this bushfire, um, which living now in Europe, when you think of what 450,000 hectares is, it's a large part of Europe. <laughs> the whole of that uh, was blackened and burnt. Um, the area which I was living in at the time, Nanagoon, was heavily affected. Um, so you get in the period of a bushfire, you know, warnings about when it's coming. It sort of is something that repeats every year. Um, but I remember the warnings at that time in 2009 was sort of fairly serious. Um, there was a lot of publication over the radio, the television, um, that people were evacuating pretty quickly out of areas. And it was sort of the first time that I'd heard, you know, the, the fire brigade and authorities saying, you know, you, you have now the chance to get out and you of course have the decision yourself to either stay and protect your home and fight the fire, or you choose to take your belongings, your most precious possessions and your wildlife and get out while you still can. And we'd had a couple of weeks of above 40 degrees. And like I said, we'd had, you know, a few summers really, really dry with also these new sort of ideas of not doing backburning. There was a lot of fuel on the ground, sort of three, four years of eucalyptus leaves and branches and fuel uh, built up on the ground. And I remember it also being incredibly hot in the spring, much hotter than normal. And we were also having incredibly high winds. So you can imagine that sort of concoction, that combination of really dry summers, high temperatures above 40 degrees, a lot of buildup of fuel on the ground. Um, it was sort of the perfect storm to, you know, have a, a devastating bushfire season. Um, a good friend of mine at that time, 
Mr. Paul Beath, <laughs> who I haven't spoken to for quite some years. He was uh, involved or had connections to the CFA at that time, and he'd been doing some horse evacuations. And he sort of called me. I had a, a large gooseneck trailer at that time in front of my prized possession, my Ford F-150. And he had sort of asked if we could help out to do some evacuations. And we started to move some horses around out of some areas that were sort of in the firing line of where the fire was traveling. And we, they sort of notified some people in a certain area close to me, sort of Tainong, Tainong North. And I sort of was living on the flats and looking up towards the hills of the upper parts of that region. And by then it, it had sort of been some weeks where the fires had been going and, you know, you had this thick layer of smoke. There was a lot of ash falling down, sort of like a gray snow. Um, you sort of get this haze, almost like a, you know, Independence Day type overcast from smoke and smog. Um, the sun trying to burn through still at 40 degree temperatures through the smog and every day hearing of devastating stories of people that had stayed back to protect their home and sort of met their fate. Um, you know, all the stories that come with bushfires of wildlife, CFA members saving koalas and wildlife that are wild, making a connection with humans in the face of adversity. Um, and there was this particular region from us had had the warning to evacuate and we'd been into that region and maybe moved 10, 20 horses from that area two weeks before. And then we'd had a day or a week that had started to build up some extremely high winds. And then we had a, a change in direction of the wind, which had moved the fire rapidly uh, towards our direction. And Paul got word that there were still some horses in that area that were now directly in the firing line of where the fire was going. Um, and so he called me up in the morning and said, we have to head out and see if we can get these horses out of this particular area. And I sort of said, well, shouldn't they have been evacuated some weeks ago? And he said, well, there's some people that didn't, and now they've changed their mind. So... Paul comes round to my place and we get in the truck, uh, sort out the gooseneck, and we have some coordinates of how to get to that place, this property. And the coordinates was not the direct route we would normally take because some of the highway was blocked off, stopping people from going into the fire-ridden uh, areas. And so we headed sort of following these coordinates of how we had to get there with a map. So not so much the GPS, but looking at a map that was sort of with some highlighter on it, showing the options of where we could go. And we ended up coming onto a dirt road, which was quite steep. And we got to the point where the road had narrowed really quickly and the truck could no longer get traction to get up the hill. So we were maybe 300 meters, 400 meters from the property over the ridge. 
but we were not able to get there with a few attempts going up. Um, we had a tank of water on the back of the truck in between the gooseneck on the, on the bed of the truck. And my old truck had some big four inch pipes, each exhaust pipes down the side of the truck. You can imagine in 40 degree heat and running uh, a five liter V8 truck to pull this, that they get quite hot. There's also some, um, tracks where the fire brigade comes with a grader and they sort of, um, grade a part of the vegetation away, uh, actually for water to, uh, escape. And we sort of reversed into this cutout part. And of course there was so much dry debris on the ground. And, you know, if you having your sunglasses facing the sun at the wrong position and you've got the reflection of the glass onto the ground, um, you can start a fire very easily. And so, you know, in the place and in your mind, you are afraid of fire and how serious bushfires are. And you have the talk of people deliberately lighting fires and the devastation in people's lives and the pain and suffering it's causing a lot of people. And we'd reversed in because we had to turn around. So we're in an emergency situation trying to get to this property, racing the fire uh, to get there, to get the horses out, not knowing what we were going to turn up to when we arrived. And we reversed into this spot and then we're starting to make sort of a three-point turn to get quite a long gooseneck uh, turned around in this narrow dirt road and realized that the heat of the pipes from the height of the truck to the ground ignited the gum leaves. So we were now in a situation where we'd lit a fire. So we turned the truck around and had to get into the back and Paul started opening up the water tank to try to put this fire out. And while Paul turning this, trying to douse this small sort of flame that ignited underneath the truck, my truck was running also on LPG. So you can imagine if you've got flames underneath your truck in this situation that with an LPG tank on the back of your truck, it's not a situation you want to sort of sit in for very long. So while Paul was dousing this fire uh, underneath the truck, I looked across and we were sort of halfway up the hill and I could look across between the trees to the treetops and the fire was rolling across the top of the gum trees in our direction. The wind was quite strong that we were getting smoke and ash and things blown directly in our direction. And I just said to Paul, you better get that done quick because we have to get out of here. There's not a lot of time. And if we have to circle back and try to find our way to this property, you know, the fire could be moving quicker than we can. So we got in the truck and we had to then find our way to this property via this map, a new direction. So we went back, we managed to cut through another part, find a bitumen road, get our way onto the highway, which was blocked off, go into the direction of the fire and then make our way back up in the direction of this property. So we're coming to it from the other side. We come up to the property and I can remember rolling down the window, trying to see where we had to go. And I can remember hearing the roar of the fire. So the sound of the power of this 
flammable demon um, coming towards. And you know that sensation or when you're sitting in front of a campfire and you hear the crackle and it becomes something pleasant, um, it was funny that sort of contrast to when something turns and becomes much greater and much more powerful and then those crackles were not something that was pleasant anymore and the roar of a fire traveling at the winds being 60 kilometers an hour at the time was just frightening um we we didn't say anything to each other at that moment we just knew that we were in a tight situation we got to the property and the lady the owner of the property and the owner of the horses was still there and she was sort of in a panic state um, of course, the fire is coming and the whole place is full of smoke. Um, she sort of got in her arms photo albums and, you know, obviously papers and documents and passports and things like that. And she was only screaming about the horses that were in the field. And Paul sort of suggested to her, you know, just get in your car and go, get out while you can and we will take care of the horses. So the owner got in the car and she left the situation and we reversed the truck up to the paddock that was sort of on the roadside. There was a little bit of a, a car park and then off the gravel there was a gateway and then the field sort of went down uh, into a valley and we'd reversed the, the gooseneck up. We opened the back of the trailer and we started to head down. We put the bandanas over our noses and we walked down into the field. After about 50 meters, we couldn't see each other anymore, but we could still see the fire coming across the treetops. We could hear the roar of the flames coming in our direction. And then we could also hear the screams of the horses. So you're in this situation where you're not sure how much time you've got, whether you should even be there. Things are running through your mind of do we open the gate and give the possibility for these horses to let themselves free? You know, are we pushing the boundaries of being here ourselves? Is there going to be a way out? And we were sort of down the bottom end and we could hear the horses galloping, screaming up and down through the field that was maybe a two-acre paddock. Um, not being able to see the horses, you know, thinking, are they going to come out of the smog and be screaming in panic and run us over? Um, there was one older gelding and there were two younger horses and one mare. Um, the two younger horses, one was, was the, a mare and the other one was obviously a foal or it was a yearling. It was obviously a youngster from that mare. And then there was a small pony. And Paul managed to get a halter on the small pony and started to lead back towards the truck. And I said to Paul, I said, I'm, I don't know if we're going to be able to get these other ones. We can't see them. They're running in panic. Um, and I think we're running out of time. And I think it's a, the best idea is to head up towards the truck and, and get out of here. And so you're torn in your mind of, you know that if you leave these horses now, that they're most likely going to perish. And it's now your responsibility to 
make sure they come out of there safely. And you know in the back of your mind, you've promised the owner that you will take care of it. Don't worry, we will get the horses, you get yourself to safety. So we're sort of reluctantly walking back to the gooseneck and not knowing at that time whether we were really going to drive away or not, but knowing that we had very limited time and we get to the back of the gooseneck and the old gelding was standing at the tailgate and Paul said, hey, look, it, one of the horses is standing at the gooseneck. So we get there, we get to the ramp, still f thick with smog. The gooseneck had also filled up with smoke a little bit now because we'd left it open. And I was thinking at that moment, okay, we have the two. Do we have time to hang around to see where the others are? And by that stage, the temperatures were also incredibly hot. I don't know whether it was the heat from the fire or the fact that we'd been in the smoke for that long. And as we walked up to start to put a halter on the gelding, the other two were already standing in the trailer. So the mare, I don't know if she'd ever been on a trailer before, but definitely the yearling had never been in, and the yearling was standing in front of the mare. So these two were already in and saying, you know, come on, get us out of here. So luckily the old gelding went in fairly easily and also the pony, and we closed up and we started to head out. And as we drove out of there, we, you know, had the idea that we'd been successful and that we were going to be able to tell this owner that we had her horses and we'd, we'd been able to save them and get out of that situation. And I remember then after the fires had gone through and we'd seen all kinds of devastation, um, that I drove back up through that area and there was also a lot of apple orchards and and different farms. And I remember seeing in particular one big shed that always used to hold crates of apples, so wooden crates where they'd stack them up. And it was quite a big shed and you know, it had these big um, I-beam steel construction, you know, the, the beams that were holding the shed up were the big I-beams, you know, solid steel. And I remember driving past this orchard and seeing everything was scorched and all the corrugated iron had sort of been stripped off the shed and the, the I-beam steel was bent over like a piece of licorice, like it was made of rubber. Um, and that for me in the beginning, my, my eyes couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I, we drove back to the place where we got the horses out from, um, and all the houses were gone in that street and the hay shed and the, and the small stable that was there was gone. And I remember a big 22,000 litre water tank was also sitting on the side of the, of the stables. And it was like a Salvador Dali painting on the ground. This big plastic water tank was just like a puddle of plastic that had just been simply melted down to nothing on the ground. 
And actually the house was still standing, which was remarkable, that everything else around it was burnt and this one house was still there. And, you know, the stories of this fire traveling up to five kilometers without anything to burn, that the creation of this fireball from the extreme temperatures, and if you think about a eucalyptus tree is made of oil, so you can imagine having dry, dry debris on the ground. The trees that are still standing are also full of eucalyptus oil. The high temperatures above 40 degrees, the 60 kilometer an hour winds. The generation of heat and how a fireball can travel over, you know, the, the fire breaks that the brigade had made through bulldozers, you know, creating areas where it's meant to stop the fire from going further and the fireball was traveling over these and just continuing on burning. Um, it was an incredible sight to see and then to hear stories of people that had saved, managed to save their properties and people that had had their own house not burnt and then the neighbors lost everything to drive along roads and see cars totally burnt out with people's cutlery and crockery on the seat next to them and the alloy wheels also being melted um, like some kind of cartoon liquid uh, on the side of the road. Um, it's a force of nature that is not to be messed with. Um, and of course, all Australians that have been in that situation can probably talk about it in much more firsthand, and much more firsthand experience than what I can. Um, but I, I just remember from that time that it was a remarkable thing to be there to save the horse and realized we'd only just given them the opportunity to save themselves. And you hear stories <clears throat> where people come back and the horses were standing in the dam and the fire had burnt the top of their mane and their head and, and cattle and things had done the same. Here's stories where people had opened up the gate and the livestock had turned and run directly into the fire. Horses had been let free and some ran in the right direction to save themselves and other horses turned and ran directly into the fire and were perished. And, you know, it sort of gets me to thinking now with, with what I'm thinking about now with the horses is how much um, of our influence um, is affecting a horse's decision. Is this something directly from nature, you know, that the horses are in a panic, they don't know which way to go and they end up going the wrong way. And reflecting back on just the remarkableness of parking a trailer and opening it up and the two horses that were standing in there willingly themselves had maybe never been on a trailer before. Um, and what was the sense that this was the place to be or their chance to have freedom? Um, so looking back on that event, what do we really need to give our horses in every moment? You know, are we actually doing a lot for them or do we need to just open the possibility for them to 
be managing themselves and how much of our input stops them from managing themselves. You know, thinking about training in our daily lives. Are our horses learning through our mentorship from us? Or are they just abiding by our rules, waiting to be told what to do? Are we empowering them to feel like they are a master of themselves and in control of the way they can experience something? Are we teaching and guiding them to think intelligently? So I'm thinking about that more and more um, when working with my own horses now in, you know, the TRT is really about teaching them self-mastery for the horses to become a master of themselves, to feel like they're in control of the situation, to feel like they are in control of themselves and not being controlled. And thinking back then to that situation where the pressure is on, the pressure, an environmental pressure is on in that moment. And the fact that those horses were just given an opportunity and then chose to do something to save themselves um, is ever the more present now in the work that I'm doing with the horses now in thinking about giving the horse the opportunity to make the right decision to manage himself, the empowerment of being in control of the situation and knowing that you are able to make a decision to give yourself a good experience in all situations. And so the more I think about, you know, these experiences and opportunities and uh, events in my life, I always try to think back about what did that teach me? what was actually happening in that situation. Um, if we had sort of been able to have more clarity or more um, vision, because there wasn't so much smoke, if we were there on horses and had a lasso, would the experience of saving those horses have been better if we were in there roping them, dragging them onto a trailer and getting them to safety? Um, of course, in that situation, you just want to have the best situation to save them, that there's a good outcome. Um, but it also makes me think out of a, such an emergency situation, for instance, starting a fall, are we taking them and focusing on getting the halter on them? Or are we opening and giving the horse an opportunity to learn to put the halter on himself? How much of the time are we trying to get the horses to do something and how much of the time are we creating a possibility for them to make a good choice, be a good decision maker, to make the situation better for themselves? And, of course, everything I learn about horses is a great reflection of myself and I try to reflect back to how I'm creating opportunities for myself. If I have an idea or an opportunity or I would want to create a certain experience, how much pressure do I put on myself to make it in the way that I think it should be and how much space do I leave for the opportunity for how it should be? For instance, I used to put a lot of pressure on myself of creating a certain experience through a live event. I wanted everything to be run systematically, that people should experience this. I learned through following a lot of life coaching courses and seminars to how to keep people engaged how to give them a thrill, how to trigger their mind to self-learn, how to create their physiology to stay engaged, 
Um, and I was often trying to give a clinic in which I thought I was delivering what the people needed. And instead of sort of providing something that was true for myself and then allowing the situation and the elements and the ingredients of the moment add the true beauty to what would have come from that event. So looking back into my life and a lot of different situations and being in the moment, quite often there's things to learn in that moment, but when we reflect back and really analyze what went on, there's often a lot of more things we can learn from moments that are presented in our life. So I look forward, guys, to sharing more of these things with you. This was the first episode of the TAT podcast. If you're not a member, follow the link, join the community to talk and storytell and express and share your journey with each other. If you are a member of the TAT method, get into the community, listen to the podcasts, share your own ideas and your own experiences after listening to these episodes. And we look forward to seeing you on the next podcast.